Are you willing to examine the traditions and doctrines that you trust in for your eternal salvation? Welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I am Don Britton and I will be your host. I will be comparing the modern traditions and doctrines of American Christianity with what the scriptures actually say. You may be shocked to find out that much of what is commonly believed in American Christianity today is nothing more than myths handed down to us by men. So please join me now with an open mind. Hello and welcome back to another Great Deception podcast. I'm Don Britton and today I'm going to speak with you about how today's grace is being falsely taught by almost all of today's pastors and prophets, evangelists and Bible teachers. Now I want, to, I want you to pay careful attention to what I'm about to say because your understanding of how grace works may have been the result of false teaching because nearly everyone in America today is being taught a false version of grace. I was also taught this false version of grace myself in the early years as a Christian before I studied it out for myself. So please listen now and pay careful attention because this is very, very important and critical. In Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, I want you to understand something. There are two kinds of works in the Bible. Today's teachers are, are just taking anything that we do and calling it works, whether it's repentance or obedience or, or overcoming sin. They, they, they're just throwing everything into the same basket as works, as works of the law. There's the works of the law, and then there's other things that God has commanded us to do that uh, they also call works. So let me just break it down for you this way. Since there are two kinds of works in the Bible, the first one is called the works of the law, and the second one is called the works of obedience. I'm calling it the works of obedience because it's a work. And now the works of the law is like this. It's the religious works or the good deeds or the missions or the church programs or the rituals that you practice at church or the ceremonies that you perform uh, any kind of Christian activities like church attendance, worship services, good deeds, paying your tithes, any of those things are called, you know, this is just a type of the original, the works of the law of the, of the Jews was all the other ceremonies and things they had to do. Now we have the works of the law today that are similar, and now we have all the religious stuff, the, the, the church stuff that we do, that none of this, of course, all the religious activity in the world, all the church services, all the different things you can do will not save you. Those things are not what saves you. And the second kind of works is the works of obedience, which is basically obeying God and his word. And also without these works of obedience to God and his word, you can't be saved. So religious works won't save you. Uh, that is the works of the law, the types of the works of the law, or the works of obedience which you have to do in order to be saved. So there's two different kinds of works here. But what's happened today is the false grace teachers are just saying anything you do or try to do to be saved is called, uh, is just an attempt at work salvation. So almost none of today's grace teachers are distinguishing between these two kinds of works, that is the works of the law versus works of obedience. And they do teach that any effort on your part to be saved is wrong because they say that Jesus did everything for you. That is just not biblical, though. They also teach that any kind of effort on your part is just an attempt at work salvation. But they do say 
they t- these modern preachers today say that faith alone, just faith alone in Jesus will save you. In other words, just accept it mentally that you believe in Christ and accept him and the work he's done and so forth on the cross and you're going to heaven no matter what happens from that point. I've even seen one, I was a witness watching TV one day and I saw one TV preacher go so far as to say that even to repent of sin was just a works attempt at salvation or to when you remember when Jesus, he was even quoting where Jesus said, if you don't forgive, neither will you be forgiven. When you stand praying, you got something against someone. Well, he was saying that you do not have to forgive anyone, even if you hold a grudge or even if you're bitter, in order to be saved. So what he was saying was that anything like repentance of sin or forgiving others as being necessary for salvation was what he said it was a lie. He was even going on to say that you didn't have to do what Jesus said because Jesus was speaking at the time of under the law and now Paul is the one who is the is the is the apostle of grace. So all we have to do is just go and read whatever Paul said and only do that. Of course, if you read everything Paul said, you'll find that he was saying the same thing Jesus was saying. This guy was really picking out grace verses to make it sound like there was nothing that you had to do. So he was saying, all you have to do is is to just believe that Jesus died for your sins and accept that, accept him, accept that fact, and you would be saved without doing anything else. No repentance, no forgiveness, no overcoming, no taking up your cross, no turning away from sin, no overcoming the world. No, all you had to do was just accept this fact and you were going to heaven then no matter what you did. So he suggested, he was very straight about this, that for you to do something, even anything like repentance of sin, as Jesus said, and other things, that it was just an attempt at work salvation. And and honestly, in listening to so many TV preachers and radio preachers and having gone to many churches and many meetings and have read various books and various tracts have been written, and he's not far off from what almost everybody's saying in some way or the other. He even said we didn't have to obey Jesus, which I thought was pretty weird. I haven't heard many people go that far with it, but he did say you didn't have to obey Jesus. What he said when Jesus gave all those stern warnings about taking up your cross, uh, denying yourself, overcoming sin. It's not the one Jesus said, you know, it's the one, not the one who says, Lord, Lord, but one who does the will of God. He's saying that you don't have to do what Jesus said. You don't have to do anything because Jesus was speaking under the law, which is, which is absurd that you don't have to do anything. Jesus is the Lord and Savior. He's God Almighty. What do you mean you don't have to do anything that Jesus said? Only what Paul said. Well, again, you know, I'm not going to beat that horse to death, but this is just how ridiculous some of the teachings have gotten today. So let's consider, let's consider what the works of the law really boil boil down to being. And so in in Romans uh, chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, and also uh, Romans 27 and 28, here's what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin, where then is boasting. It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, by law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So when you hear Paul speaking about works, he's always referring to the works of the law because Paul was a very uh, very strong Pharisee himself at one time. He understood about all the works of the law. See, the works of the law are always referring to the religious ceremonies 
that the Jews had to perform under the law. They were required to do things like go to the temple to worship or to a designated place to worship. They were required to keep the Sabbath. They could only eat certain kinds of foods. They had to, you know, they had to make various sacrifices. They were required to pay tithes. They were, had to be circumcised. They were having to keep the Passovers and observing many other timely rituals and many other laws and observing certain religious holidays and following the Jewish traditions. Practicing these works of the law, though, could never save anyone. So this is what Paul was talking about. Today, it's the same pattern as, as it is now being repeated. The same pattern is now being repeated in modern Christianity. Some still keep the Sabbath, while most everybody goes to a, quote, temple or slash church building to worship on the Lord's Day, quote, unquote, the Lord's Day, Sunday, Saturday or Sunday. Most think that service to God is somehow church attendance. Most still feel they have to pay tithes. Most still think that there's a certain Lord's Day and that there, and there are many, many Christian rituals being practiced and most still observe certain religious holidays like Christmas and Easter. And there are countless other religious traditions that are also being observed. But practicing these Christian works or these Christian traditions cannot save anyone any more than the works of the law of the Jews could save anyone. It can't do it. So this practice of religious rituals and traditions are the modern versions of the works of the law by which no one can be saved. You can, you can attend church for a thousand years and be no closer to salvation. You can sing in the choir. You can teach Sunday school. You can pass out tracts. You can go to the mission field. You can, you can pastor church or feed the poor, be an usher. You can play in the band, donate your money, rebuild church buildings, assist in disaster relief programs, participate in every church ritual, serve in every church program, practice every Christian tradition known to man, and do every kind of good deed and still be not one bit closer to salvation. None of these works will save you. This is what Paul the apostle was talking about. Because by the works of the law that is religious practices of any kind, no flesh will be justified in his sight. So now, let us consider the works of obedience. Versus, and we just talked about what the works of the law was. Let's think about what, consider what the works of obedience is. Even though it's a popular teaching today that because of grace, you have no part in your salvation. But don't be deceived into thinking that there's nothing you have to do to be saved. There are many things that the word requires of us in order to be saved. I call them the works of obedience that must be done on your part and my part so that we can be saved. Well, first thing is John 3.16. Everybody knows John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, if there's something that you have to do, it's a simple thing, but you must believe. We must believe. We must not only believe in God and believe in Jesus, but believing is a little bit more than taking something on mentally, but it is something you have to do to be saved. You have to actually believe. No one can do it for you, and Jesus won't do the believing for you, so you must believe, and you must believe in God and believe in Jesus, his son, and believe in his word. You have to believe it. But most of our modern grace teachers stop here and tell you this, that this is all you got to do. But really, there's more. 
And in fact, in John 3, 36, in that same chapter, he says this, he who believes in the son has eternal life, but there's the but, which is a condition. There's a condition to the believing. He who does not obey the son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So you must obey. This is something you must do to be saved. You must obey. No one can do this for you. No one else can obey for you. And Jesus won't obey for you. He's not going to do it for you. He's done his part. Now you've got to do your part. So just believing by itself is not enough. If you don't obey, then you really don't believe. You know, you can say you believe, but if you don't obey God, you don't believe in him. You don't believe him. So you must obey him or you won't be saved. And the wrath of God will remain on you if you don't obey him. You see, there's God's part and there's man's part. Covenant always requires two parts. And in true covenant, if you go back to the Old Testament, when it explains the principles of covenant, there has to be a death on both parties for the covenant to be in effect. It's even confirmed in the New Testament. Paul re refers to that. In, I believe it's in Corinthians. Here's the deal. Jesus died. We know that Jesus died. He died on the cross for us, for our sins, so that we could be saved, right? Now, Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and let him come after me and give up his life in order to find life. So here's what he's saying. Die to your sins. Die to yourself. Die to living for yourself. When you die, then you become part of the covenant. I died. You died. And now the covenant is effective. If Jesus just did the doing, the dying for us, and we don't do the dying on our part, then there's no covenant. So <laughs> that's why he said, you know, you must first believe in him that he's done his part, and then you must do your part. You must obey him. So that's what makes covenant work. People in the New Testament, I mean, the, the American church today don't even understand that covenant requires the death to be on both parties that are participating in the covenant. And Jesus went on to say in Luke, uh, chapter 24, he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Okay, there's something else that you must do, that we must do. You can't just accept Christ and be saved unless you repent of sin. So that's something that must be done to be in order to be saved. No one can do that for you. And Jesus didn't do that for you. Jesus didn't repent of your sins for you. He died and paid the price for your sins. But for you to be able to receive that, that gift he did, he gave you the gift, then you must repent of your sins. So he didn't repent of your sins for you. He just died so you could. But if you continue to practice sin after believing in Christ, accepting Christ, as, as it said, you will not be saved because the only way Jesus said that you would be forgiven of sin is to stop practicing sin, which is what repentance is. If you were a drunk, now you have to quit drinking. If you were an adulterer, you have to quit committing adultery. If you were in pornography, you have to quit pornography. If you were a liar, you had to start telling the truth. You see what I'm saying? This is what it takes to be forgiven of sins is to turn from them. And I'm going to give you a few other examples. And there's plenty of them in the scriptures. You, you know, I, I can't cover them all today. And in John 15, Jesus said that if you were in the vine, that is in Christ, in Jesus, Jesus is the vine, you're the branch. He said that you must bear fruit or you would be cut off and thrown into the fire. So you must bear fruit in order to be saved. 
just coming to Christ is only a beginning point. It just believing in Christ is only a beginning point. You must bear fruit to be saved. This is something you must do. And it's something the Lord won't do for you. He won't do it for you. Fruit is not church attendance. By the way, I want to get this cleared up. A lot of people think they're bearing fruit because they go to church. Fruit is not church attendance. Fruit is not paying your tithes. Fruit is not lifting up your hands and singing. Fruit is not singing praises to God. Fruit is not doing good deeds or speaking in tongues or praying for the sick. That's not fruit. Fruit is walking in repentance and obedience to God, having the fruit of the Spirit in your life, which is holiness, and you are now being conformed in the image of Jesus Christ. You're living a holy and pure life. You're seeking God with all your heart. You're loving God with all your heart. You're loving your neighbors yourself, and you're walking in humility. This is the fruit of God. This is not works of the law I'm talking about. This is the works of obedience, which is necessary for salvation. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus made it perfectly clear that if you did not take up your own cross and follow him, denying yourself as you go, giving up your life, that you could not be his disciple. Now, America's full of people who are attending church, who are supposedly operating in the gifts of the Spirit, who are supposedly Christians, who are doing quote-unquote good things or good deeds, but they are not bearing their cross. They're not, they're not denying themselves, and, the, and they really haven't given up their life. Maybe they've just exchanged pride for one thing for pride of another, or maybe they exchanged one obsession for obsession of another. This is, but here's this thing. You cannot be saved unless you do something here. Take up your cross. Deny yourself of the world's ways. Deny yourself of sin. This is something you must do, and Jesus won't do it for you. This is another works of obedience, which is not the works of the law. Also in Matthew 24, Jesus said that the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Jesus said this on two other occasions, by the way. So he was saying that if you want to be saved, if you want to enter heaven, you must endure. Jesus talked about that also in John 15. He talked about abiding in the vine. You have to continue to abide. You have to endure. You have to see it all the way through. So here's another works of obedience, which are necessary for salvation, which are not the works of the law by which no man can be saved. But this work is necessary to be saved. That is to endure, endure to the end, to endure faithfully and to endure obediently with God to the very end of your life being found, you know, where he says, you know, he says, enter into the joy of your master, you know, so that's where we have to be at the end of our life. It's not something we start at. We've got to see it all the way through. And this work has nothing to do with the works of the law that Paul was talking about, that some now throw anything that you do into the same basket with the works of the law. Let's talk now about how grace saves us through faith. So it says in Titus, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing. Notice what grace is doing. It's speaking it's instructing, it's instructing us. It's instructing us to deny ungodliness, to deny worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, which is now. And he goes on to say, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up to redeem us for a from to redeem us from every lawless deed 
and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Okay, here's the point. He's This grace of God is telling us to do the right thing and telling us not to do the wrong things, whatever they are, in order that he may purify for himself a people for his own possession. In other words, grace is cleansing us. It's cleansing us, us, of, cleansing us of sin, cleansing us of worldliness, and cleansing us of pride and selfishness, cleansing us of all filthiness and everything that's, that's ugly to God. Grace is instructing us and showing us and pointing out to us, correcting us, sometimes rebuking us, reminding us, telling us what is wrong in order that we may turn from it. That's how God purifies for himself a people for his own possession. And then those people are zealous for good deeds. You see, you don't, get the, you don't do the good deeds to be saved. You do the good deeds as a result of being saved. So here we have this picture. Yeah, God's grace is certainly the unmerited favor of God. We've heard this over and over. It's God's unmerited favor. Well, they've taken that unmerited favor and perverted it into something that's not. It is God's unmerited favor that he would show us how to turn from our sins, what to turn from, how to deny ourselves, what we should do. He gives us the road. Grace is the roadmap to life. It tells you how to get to life. It shows you the way. That's how it saves you. It, gets you. it takes you away from the very thing that's killing you. So God's grace is unmerited favor, and it is far more than we deserve. And his grace has appeared to all men. And this grace is not some covering of our sin, as some have made it out to be. This grace is not some excuse that we can go on sinning, that God is somehow now going to overlook it. The grace of God is actually actively instructing us to deny ourselves of sin, of worldliness, and the wages of sin are still death. It's death for anyone who practices it. I don't care who you are. So for grace to instruct us to deny ourselves of sin by telling us to deny all ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, which is right now, then the Lord's unmerited favor is demonstrated towards us to deliver us from death. It then becomes clear how grace saves us. It saves us by instructing us to turn away from what is going to kill us, which is sin and selfishness and worldliness, and to turn us towards the one who's going to save us, which is Jesus, when we obey him by following the instructions sent to us by his grace. Yeah, sure, we don't save ourselves. I'm not suggesting that we save ourselves. But Jesus will only save us when we give him our whole heart and obey his grace that instructs us to deny ourselves of sin. He's only going to save us when we obey him. He's, he's, in his grace, he's telling us what he wants and we have to choose if we're going to do it or not. In my business, I mean, I, I was in the auto repair business for 40 something years. I used to do all kinds of things with transmissions and stuff myself. I built thousands of transmissions and I remember I used to have to use a product sometimes to do metal repair called two-part epoxy. And they came in two tubes and you would take the white tube and the dark tube and you squeeze an equal amount out of each tube and you put it together and you stir it up and, in, and you had to use it pretty quickly and you had to repair a place in the transmission case or whatever that was damaged and you would smear this over there and it would harden in just a little while. And in a little while it would be so hard you could drill a hole through it with a drill or you could file it with a file or grind it with a grinder and it was very strong. But as long as those two parts remained separate, they had no strength. This is the way it is with us and God. This is the way covenant works. God does his part. I have my part. God does his part. You have your part. 
If you don't exercise your part, then it doesn't work. There's no strength there. There's no power there. It takes the two together to make the covenant work. So for grace to save you, you must exercise faith. Now, faith is the action taken by you when you believe. You can say, I believe, but if you don't do anything, but just sit down and go to church, you don't really believe. Faith always does something. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here's why it was counted as righteousness. Because Abraham obeyed God. When God said, go, he went. When God said, offer your son, he did. Abraham did something with what he was told. That's how grace and faith work together to save you. That proved his faith. Faith always obeys. Without obedience, there is no faith. The works of obedience are the manifestation of faith. John said, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life and the wrath of God abides on him. So, you've still got to do what he said. To just believe in Jesus mentally without obeying Jesus keeps one under the wrath of God. The American Christian church today is filled with people who say they believe in Jesus, yet their spiritual condition is virtually no different than the rest of the world, even though they at one time may have started out very sincere and had a heartfelt commitment to God, but they never became overcomers and, bear, and never bore fruit. In James, he says this, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Now, he's not talking about works of the law again. We're talking about works of obedience. He said, can that faith save him? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize this, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? That's James 2, verses 14, 17, and 20. So then, can faith without works save you? Obviously, the answer is no. Faith that has no works, that is, of obedience, faith that has no action, faith that says it believes but it doesn't do anything, the faith that does not obey the instructions of God, which is his grace, that kind of faith is worthless. A faith that has no action, no real obedience, no life transformation, no true repentance, no cross that it's bearing, no biblical fruit, no abiding and continuing to the end, no overcoming of sin in the world, no serious self-denial as it goes, no Christ-like character and no wholehearted love of God. This kind of faith is a false faith and it cannot and will not save anyone. This faith only has a mental belief in Jesus and somehow has been duped into thinking that that's acceptable and that will be acceptable with God in the end. But you know, the sad thing is this mental type of belief in Jesus is the normal. It's what's normally accepted today as the kind of faith in today's church that will save you. But he, but, but James even said that even the devils believe this way in the same way as this. In other words, they know who Christ is. They believe in him. They accept mentally that he is the son of God, but you know they're sure not saved and they believe and tremble. But you know, you've got to do more than just accept the fact as a truth. You've got to do something with it. And James also said this in James 1, he said, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. 
So again, here's something else you have to do. You have to be a doer of the word. You have to obey it. Then you, if, you, if you're not a doer of the word, then you're not of the faith. Again, here's something it must, that must be done to be saved. You must be a doer of the word. No one can be a doer of the word for you, and Jesus won't do it for you. There are millions of people, millions and millions and millions of people today attending church each week who are not doers of the word. They don't do what God says. They just attend church. They go through the church rituals. They do what their denomination says. They play the game. They play the church. They, they, they do the church ceremonies, the church traditions, the church rituals. They sing the songs. They think they please God. They just do it over and over again, week after week. They pay their tithes, blah, blah, blah but they do not seek God wholeheartedly or study his word as if their life depended on it to apply his word to their lives, much less obey him faithfully from the heart and live wholly for Jesus. It doesn't happen. That's why the church is in the state that it is today. And all the research has been done to prove that. So Jesus said another, in another place in Matthew 7, 21, he said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does, does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. So I looked up that word does. I know it seems a little silly to look up what does does mean in the Greek, but it is a very powerful, actionable word. It means it's actively and powerfully moving and doing something. So Jesus says, then if you look at it that way, he says, not everyone who says to be Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but every but he who powerfully engages himself, seeking me with a whole heart and actively obeying me. He is the one who does the will of my Father who will enter heaven. He's the one. So I'm, I'm going to warn you here, whoever's listening, watch out for the false grace teachers. They're everywhere and in virtually every denomination. They're in the so-called spirit-filled denominations just as well. They're everywhere. They're on all, all the Christian television stations and all of the so-called Christian radio stations, and many of these false teachers, in fact, a large number of them have these huge ministries, and they're well spoken of by millions and millions of people. They're very popular. I can start naming their names, and they're like household names, you, you, household words. You would know their names. You've heard of them over and over again. So watch out for the false grace teachers. They're everywhere. Watch out for these teachers who present grace to you that will actually cause you to be comfortable, the kind of grace that will cause you to be comfortable and to relax in your sins, who tell you that all your sins that you commit today and in the future are, are already forgiven. Have you heard that one before? These, these false teachers, they leave out repentance of sin for forgiveness of sins. They're the ones who leave out your personal cross and your self-denial and giving up of your life. They leave that out. They leave out the covenant requirements of he died, you die, kind of thing. So watch out for these grace teachers who tell you that grace is somehow a covering for your sin while you continue to live in sin and you think it's okay. Watch out for these grace teachers who tell you that you're still just a poor sinner saved by grace as though you could continue living and practicing sin as though that was something normal for a Christian as if somehow grace excuses or covers up your sin. These men are liars. These men tickle ears. These men are smooth talkers. These men please people. These men are wolves in sheep's clothing and they are very popular, but they will rob you of your soul. If you follow their advice, you cannot continue in willful sin and be saved at the same time. So Jude warned us about them. 
He said, Beloved, while I was making every effort to you about our common salvation. Now he's talking about salvation. The topic here is salvation. I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness, which means, if you look it up, it means license. It basically, it's giving you a license to sin. It's saying if you sin, it's not going to matter. They're saying it's okay to sin. So they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they don't deny him with their words, of course. They deny him by teaching this false grace. Now, he says, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, now remember, he saved them, then subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. If you go back and look that up, they're the ones who, they turned against the Lord, they didn't trust him. When he says they did not believe, they did not obey him. So, these false grace teachers are basically saying, you can be saved even though you walk in sin. You can, you're, you know, they're calling it just normal for a Christian to practice sin. I'm not talking about somebody stumbling by accident. I'm not talking about somebody committing an un, you know, unintentional sin. I'm not talking about somebody who does fall in the mud, so to speak, and gets up and washes himself off and goes on. The Lord understands that. I'm not talking about human perfection here. I'm talking about living a lifestyle of laziness and selfishness and greed and idolatry and lust and not, not really turning from it and going to church and singing, oh, how I love Jesus on Sunday while you live in your sin. While 68% of America's uh, so-called Christian men are in pornography. More than 50% of the pastors are in pornography. Ad adultery and fornication is just as rampant in the American churches as it is in the secular world. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about willful and known sin not being repented of. And, this is going, this, and these false teachers are causing people to feel safe while they live in sin by teaching grace in a false way. So you see these grace teachers, they've crept in unnoticed, and they're unnoticed. Who, who's noticing them? You, you tell me who's, who's exposing them on national TV? Which ministry is exposing this? Tell me, which church is taking a stand and throwing this, this doctrine out? It seems like almost no one has noticed them. They are everywhere. These false grace teachers are everywhere. They're in every denomination and they're on every television and radio station today that are supposed to be Christian. They are the most popular and well-known men and women in ministry today as well as your just your normal local pastor who's doing the same thing because he gets his cues from the big boys and the seminaries are teaching them the same thing. The Bible schools are teaching the same thing. I've looked into it. They are. They're all teaching this false grace. They're the ones who turn the grace of our God the grace that instructs us not to sin, the grace that condemns sin, they turn that grace of our God into licentiousness, which is a license to practice sin, and they tell you that you can still go to heaven while you continue to live in sin, while you live a carnal lifestyle, or while you just remain lukewarm, casual, not fervent, not wholehearted, you just go to church, you're a nice person, and they tell you you're just fine while you remain worldly and holy, and yet religious. So to sum it all up, I'd like to say this. Grace is the instruction of God. It's the instruction to deny ourselves of sin and ungodliness and worldly desires. Grace goes on to also instruct us how to live sensibly, 
righteously and godly right now in this present age. Grace is also God's rebuke for wrongdoing. Grace is God's correction when we need it. Grace is the fear of God that keeps us from sin. Grace is anything that God does to turn us from sin and worldliness. That's his grace. That's his unmerited favor to save us. But grace does not excuse or cover up sin as it's been preached today. And faith is the action, the obedience to the grace of God that tells us what to do and what not to do. If you do not have obedient faith, then you don't have saving faith. Sin and disobedience to God always results in the eternal loss of a soul. Grace gives us direction and instruction that leads us out of the destructive pattern of living after the flesh. Faith is the action of obedience taken by anyone to obey God's instruction, which we have just defined as grace. In Hebrews 11, it says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. James said to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only who deludes himself. Jesus said that not everyone who said, Lord, Lord, would enter heaven, but the one who does his will. So have you noticed the false grace teachers all around you? Have you noticed how they've crept into American Christianity unnoticed? Have you noticed that? Have you thought about it? Are you thinking about it now? Let me ask you something. Have these false grace teachers influenced you to be relaxed about your own sin and your own worldliness or maybe your lukewarmness? Maybe you just think it's all handled for you. You've got your fire insurance, so to speak. You're just on your way to heaven while you're sitting there not really changed in your heart. If this is, if this is so, then maybe these words of Jesus will stir you up and wake you up. Revelation 3, chapter 1. He said to the angel of the church in Sardis, right. And, you know, right here where it said Sardis, you could insert to the church of, in America, right. To any church in America, right. He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. He said, wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds complete in the, in the sight of my God. So remember what you heard and received. Well, what have we heard and received? Was it not the grace of God that told us we couldn't walk in sin? Was it not the grace of God that told us we had to take up our cross, that we had to obey God? that we had to deny, our, deny ourselves, that we had to be overcomers, that we had to give up our life. Have we not heard this before? Did we not believe it? He's told us all this before. It's all over the Bible. Have we not studied? Or do we just go with these little slogans that our false teachers have given us, these little slogans like, well, we're just all poor sinners to you know, save by grace or something like that. Have we been influenced so much that we've forgotten the things that we heard before? So remember what you've received and heard before and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, Jesus says. That's not going to be good. And you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. That won't be good. But you have a few a few people that it's always a few. You know, it's always a few. You could go to a church of 10,000 and you might find two or three or just a very few that really love God and are grieved about what's going on. He said, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not stole their garments. How do you stole your garments? With sin. How do you stole yourself? You stole yourself with sin. So he says, who, who have not stole their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse five, he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And listen to this, listen carefully. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Guess whose name he's going to erase from the book of life. 
It's all those who don't wake up, who don't overcome, who think they're alive, but they're dead. Unless they, all those who don't repent, he's saying repent. He said, wake up and repent unless he's going to come or he's going to come like a thief. And when he comes like a thief and you haven't repented, he says, I'm going to erase your name from the book of life. How about that? That ought to be a wake up call. He goes on to say, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. You know what? I'm afraid that many, many people, especially here in America, will have their names erased from the book of life because of this modern false grace teaching that's, that's everywhere. I hope none of you listening today will be among them. I really do. The reason why I teach this way is because I'm concerned. The reason why I speak this way is because I'm very concerned of what's happening in America to the church, how the church has turned away from God, how America's turned away from God. I hope you listen next week to another Great Deception podcast as I continue to expose the great deceptions of American Christianity without Christ. Thank you for listening to the Great Deception podcast. You may visit my website at www.christianmyths.org for more information, for my blog and for my email address. You can also get my book, The Great Deception of American Christianity Without Christ on Amazon or on my website. Also on my website, you may download two free chapters of my book. I hope you join me next week as we continue to examine The Great Deception.